when we are ready to surrender to the rule and reign of God in every single area of our lives, where there's no hidden areas, no locked doors, nothing swept under the carpet, when our life in all of its vulnerability and transparency is surrendered to Him, then, then things begin to change. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Can you turn with me please to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we're reading this morning verses 1 to 13. You'll find it on page 443 of the Church Bible, page 443, 1 Samuel chapter 16. This morning we are beginning a new series of studies that will take us up to Thanksgiving, which is now less than three weeks away, and that's a bit of an alarm in itself. It will be here before we know it. And over these three next three Sundays together, we'll be focusing on the life of David. Now, what has happened in the first 15 chapters of Samuel is that Saul has become the king of Israel, the first king of Israel, and he was on the throne for the best part of 30 to 35 years. And in recent years, in chapters 14, 15, and so on, Saul was beginning to drift from the things of God. Samuel, God's prophet, was seriously concerned about the future of Israel. His own sons had been a disappointment to him as they did not carry out their spiritual responsibilities. And Saul was a little distant and negligent and wandering from the things of God. And so in first chapter, in first Samuel 16, things begin to change. Let's begin verse 1. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? since I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliob and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look on at the things man looks at, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. 
Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him, and we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Saul, as you know, had been on the throne of Israel for several decades. And in recent years, as we said moments ago, he was wandering from the things of God and doing so in a radical fashion. Spiritual erosion was a living reality for Saul. It was slow, subtle, silent. Saul was no longer the godly leader that Israel needed. He'd become insular distant, impulsive, at times rash. He was hurting himself, his family, those around him, and Israel needed a new king. And when God says to Samuel the prophet, I'm ready to anoint a new king, he selects David. David would become the greatest leader in all of the history of Israel. Sixty-six chapters in Scripture are given over to David. When Luke is writing the book of Acts and he sums up David, he sums up David like this. He was a man after God's own heart. Now that's quite the compliment. A man after God's own heart. And over these next three Sundays together, we're going to spend Sunday mornings with David going deeper and deeper and deeper into not only David's life, but what God was doing to David to shape and fashion and mold him to become the man that God was calling him to be. If you're familiar with the Christian writer Chuck Swindoll, you will know that Chuck is one of the great communicators of the Word of God. He's written, gosh, maybe 70 or 80 books. He's a first-class communicator. Several years ago, maybe as long as 10 years ago now, he wrote a series of biographies on Old Testament characters. And when he was summing up David, who incidentally takes up 66 chapters in Scripture, this is what he said about David. He said, in many ways, he was a most extraordinary man. Intelligent, handsome, abundantly gifted as a poet, musician, warrior, and administrator. David had the charisma to inspire his people and bring his nation to a pinnacle of strength and glory. Yet in other ways, he was a most ordinary man, often gripped with destructive passions, rocked by family chaos and personal tragedy, and motivated by political expediency. Here is a leader who had all that he longed for, and who regrettably surrendered to the seduction and corruption of sin. God, however, refuses to abandon David. He restored and renewed this dysfunctional prodigal 
who ultimately became known as a man after God's own heart. That's an excellent summary of David. And so as we get further into this passage, travel back with me in your imagination to a conversation that's taking place between Samuel and God. Samuel has lived for many decades, been the prophet of God in an outstanding way many times. He had given over the many of his responsibilities to his sons who, like Saul, had drifted from the things of God. And I imagine in my mind's eye as I open up this chapter that here was Samuel, the old prophet, with his head down, shaking his head, thinking, what on earth has happened? Is this that all these recent decades have amounted to? Saul wandering from the things of God, my son's been disobedient. What is going on here? And it almost seems as if God whispers into his soul and says, Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Let it go. Don't hold on to the past. You cannot live there. You learn from it. But Samuel, it's time to move on. And he says, now go to Bethlehem. And of course, as soon as we read Bethlehem, our spiritual antenna come up and we think, what is going on? Go to Bethlehem. There you will find Jesse. I have chosen one of his sons. And Samuel's immediate pushback is this. But Lord, how can I do this? Saul will hear of it and he will kill me. And here is Samuel, the great prophet of God, wrestling with fear and uncertainty. And what has happened is this, that the challenge in front of him has become so overwhelming, he's focused on the challenge and not on God himself. And notice what God says in response. How does God answer that objection by Samuel? He ignores it doesn't deal with it. He doesn't address it. It's almost as if he's putting his arm around him and saying, Samuel, Samuel, listen to what I've asked you to do. Be obedient. Be faithful. Samuel, I will deal with all the other stuff. You don't need to deal with it. You don't have to address every problem. You don't have to control and organize every situation. I can deal with it. Do as you're asked, be faithful, be obedient. And that's exactly what happens. When Samuel arrives in Bethlehem, the elders are a little concerned. They are fearful, in fact. I don't know what his relationship was with the elders, but they may be thinking, is he coming to bring the judgment of God? And if Saul is wandering from the things of God, has he commanded Samuel to come and tell us that we must surrender or households and our land and our livestock to the king. What is going on? And Samuel calms them down and says, I have come to sacrifice. Consecrate yourselves. In other words, wash up, clean up. Let's set some time aside when we can sacrifice to the Lord. And that's exactly what takes place right there. And so as we get further into the passage, what do we see? We see that Samuel looks at Jesse's firstborn. He's tall, impressive. He's the oldest boy. He thinks, well, maybe this is the Lord's anointed. And then you have this remarkable passage that in many ways sums up the rest of the life of David. 
And God speaks to Samuel and says, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What was it that God saw in the heart of young David? David, who no one even thought to mention to Samuel. What was it God saw in David? And what he saw in David was this, that in recent months, David had been out there looking after his father's sheep, and he had been faithful and diligent and focused and determined day after day after day after day. He was faithful in small things. He was protecting the sheep. He was finding new pasture for them. He was feeding them. He was looking after them. In the most mundane, routine things of everyday life, David was diligent and faithful. David wasn't interested in being an American Idol winner. He wasn't interested in becoming some kind of pseudo-pop star. What he was interested in doing was this, being faithful where he spent most of his daily working life. So here's the question. God saw in the heart of David humility and a servant attitude. And he saw them above everything else. When his brothers and his father were back home looking after the important stuff, here was David humbly surrendering and submitting every area of his life to the things of God. And with the servant's humble heart, he was being faithful. Let me pause for a second and suggest this. God never works in a vacuum. God was in the last few months as he had been working with David, dealing with David's heart, shaping it, fashioning it, molding it to become what? One with himself. That's what was going on. And in the midst of the ordinary and the everyday activities of life, God was working in the heart of David. In the midst of solitude where no one else was around, there was no one to shake him by the hand and say, David, thank you, you did a great job today. There was no one to pat him on, pat him on the back and say, boy, go for it. David, I'm so impressed, well done. There was none of that. When David was out there in the hill country of Judea, on his own, paradoxically, he was delighting and being thrilled by the presence of God himself. That's what was going on right there. He was delighting and taking great contentment. It was a visceral experience for David as God began to deal with and shape and fashion his heart that would change him for the rest of his days. That's where he found deep contentment. 
That's where his affection was formed. That's where his motivations and desires were surrendered and submitted to the rule and reign of God himself. And that's why God was selecting David. He was being trained amid solitude, amidst the most mundane, insignificant, daily, routine tasks when no one else was around. So let me ask you this morning this. Now, I'm not about to tread on your toes. I'm about to walk all over them. Please hear me. When you are on your own, away from cell phones and away from computer screens, away from television, away from family and friends and work colleagues, and you are entirely on your own, how do you spend that time? Do you delight in him? Is there that deep, visceral contentment in him? Is there that sense of God recalibrating and retuning and shaping your heart and your affections and your loves? Is that what's taking place? Because when that takes place, there you are at one with God himself, excited, thrilled with deep contentment. That's what's going on here in the midst of the monotonous and the mundane and the daily and the routine in solitude and obscurity. That's what was happening to young David. And as we move towards the latter half of the chapter, what do we discover is this, that Samuel did not think David was the one. Jesse, David's father, didn't even think to mention him. And the military, religious, and tribal leaders who sat in council all over the nation of Israel were focused on Saul But God was focused on David. The seemingly insignificant and the instantly forgettable wee boy who was looking after the sheep would become the greatest leader in all of Israel's history because God was there and David was finding his contentment in him. Now, before we go any further and try and wrap all this up this morning, please hear this. Our question thus far has been, what did God see in David? And it's not the best question. The real question is this, what did David see in God? And he saw an almighty, omnipotent creator. 
who loved him from before the foundation of the world, who delighted in young David and shaped and fashioned him and whispered to his soul, that's what was changing David. And David's deepest affection, his motivation, his desire, his very heart, that deep, fulcrum center of his life was being refined and changed by God. Beloved, hear me when I say this. When you go through such an experience, nothing else comes close, and you will never be satisfied with anything else again. That's what was going on in the life of David. That's why they could say he was a man after God's own heart. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. And what else does the passage tell us? It's this. That whenever we struggle, is it because we need more information? No. Is it because we need to learn new concepts, ideals, principles? No. It's because of what happened to David here that we need to learn more than anything else. That those deep, intentional, or internal affections are submitted and surrendered and retrained and refined by God. And when we are ready to submit them when we are ready to surrender to the rule and reign of God in every single area of our lives, where there's no hidden areas, no locked doors, nothing swept under the carpet, when our life in all of its vulnerability and transparency is surrendered to Him, then, then things begin to change. If you have been a heart patient or have a family member who's a heart patient, you will know this. When the patient comes out of surgery, those first few days are critical. Doctors, nursing staff will tell you that you need to be protected from infection. You need to take your meds. You need to build into your life new healthy habits that will keep the heart strong. And you cannot go back to living the way you once lived. It is the same with the heart and soul of the individual. When Christ comes into our lives and impacts those lives and transforms us and renews us and draws us into a relationship with himself, we have a new heart. We have all the potential for new habits, all the possibilities of growth and development. But unless we build in those healthy habits of prayer, Not formal, stilted, repetitive prayer that is nothing less than rota, but heartfelt, genuine, honest, transparent prayers. Then you're building in healthy habits. On Sunday morning, when we gather for worship, how often have we said in recent months, 
That when we gather for worship, this is the highlight of our entire weekend. And we mean that and are serious about it because we meet with the living God corporately and He works in our midst and He retrains our affections. He changes our loves and He recalibrates the heart and mind and soul. That's when we're entering into discipleship. That's when we're growing. That's what's going on here. When we build those habits into our lifestyle, it becomes second nature. And we do, what is it we do? We do the natural things spiritually and the spiritual things naturally. That's what God saw in David. That's why in the midst of solitude and monotony, with anonymity, God began to work in David, because God was utterly restless in his pursuit of David, and he would not give up. And please hear this, when he begins to work like that in our lives, our response is that deep, visceral contentment when we submit and surrender to the rule and reign of God. And when we are there, when we are there, I cannot help but wonder if one day it will be said of us, they are men and women after God's own heart. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this spectacular passage of Scripture. Forgive us for the moments that we wander from you and forget all that we have learned. And so, Father, we ask that you would equip and enable us to live out our faith this week so that tomorrow morning and Tuesday and Wednesday will be as exciting as Sunday because we have retrained and recalibrated our affections and our love. Father, may that be the living reality for us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Music and Worship Arts Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Greenville presents Christmas at First, December 2nd and 3rd in the Sanctuary, featuring a full orchestra and soloist from the Metropolitan Opera, New York City Opera, and regional favorites. Tickets are available for $10 per person or $20 per family. Visit firstpresgreenville.org for details.